Hello, and welcome back to Resurrections and Adam Warlock Podcast. I'm your host, Al Sedano, and I'd like to start off by thanking all of you for downloading this extra-long episode. Yes, you were not mistaken when you looked at the length before you started playing this. It is about 50 minutes long. We are covering two issues after all this episode, so it is going to be a little longer than normal. I figured, what the hell, since we are closing out the Lee Kirby era of Adam Warlock, and I wanted to cover the first appearance of the High Evolutionary and the Man-Beast. Might as well just do both parts in one episode and do a supersize extravaganza they would have done to close out their era. I also want to make one or two notes real quick before we get into the episode. Uh, first off, when I'm talking about the backup stories that appear in these issues, the villain in that story is named Fafnir, F-A-F-N-I-R, and... You're going to notice I keep going back and forth between calling him Fafnir and Farnir. Because when you look at it written F-A-F-N-I-R, it just looks so wrong. My, at least my brain keeps trying to change it to something that makes more sense, which is an R. But it's not. Also, when I'm talking about where the stories are reprinted, and I mentioned the series Marvel Spectacular, I don't know if the Tales of Asgard stories are reprinted in there. However, I do know that I think pretty much all the Tales of Asgard stories have been reprinted in a Tales of Asgard trade paperback. So if you want to look find those, you can find those reprinted there. Before we get started with the issues we're going to cover in this episode, I'm going to bring us down a little bit. On May 2nd of this year, Jamie D. from the Comic Geek Speak podcast passed away. He'd been dealing with cancer for the last few years. And for those of you who don't know, Comic Geek Speak is a obviously comic-related podcast that has been going on since 2006 and has at least about, I'd say, 1,600 episodes. Any one of us who enjoy this medium of podcasting and specifically comic book-related podcasts really owe them a debt in one way or another, whether we even knew who they were or not. So, here's to you, Jamie. I'm going to put a link to Comic Geek Speak in the show notes on the Tumblr page, and we're just going to listen to a minute or two of uh, one of Jamie's side projects that he did. And then we'll get started on the actual episode here and get onto the issues of Thor. Alrighty, this is Comic Geek Speak presents Jamie's Essentials. Let's pretend there's music here because I don't have any music for this yet. This is my first attempt at a solo podcast. And I called it Jamie's Essentials because I... We've done spotlights on some characters before, and with, <clears throat> pardon me, with Marvel's 70th anniversary, we really don't seem to be doing much on Marvel's 70th anniversary. So I thought a neat way to do that, and since I'm the Marvel guy of the group, uh, since Kevin no longer seems to come and uh, Matt isn't here, um, and Brian, along with Brian, I'm the Marvel guy, um, I thought it'd be neat to just start a podcast about what I consider the essential storylines, essential issues. Because we get, a, we get that uh, question a lot from a lot of newer listeners, come onto the forums and they'll say, oh, I like, I like Spider-Man, but I don't know where to start. Where should I start? So I thought, oh, I'd take it upon myself now. Again, this is totally my humble opinion and uh, my guests, uh, which I will, I, I will introduce my guest in a few minutes, um, uh, our humble opinions on what we feel uh, you should read if you're going to read Spider-Man. Now, one thing I did find out as I started doing some research for this is there is a lot of Spider-Man comics out there. I did not realize that. So this episode is going to really 
uh, focus on Amazing Spider-Man. If the uh, overall reception to this episode is good, we may go back. Uh, my guest and I, if he's so gracious enough to come back again, we'll go back and maybe talk more about things such as uh, Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man, uh, Web of Spider-Man, Non-Adjective Spider-Man, Peter Parker Spider-Man, uh, issues like you know issues like that, and try to get some essentials in there. Well, we're going to try to throw them in if we think uh, there were some interesting uh, tidbits. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about maybe about you know Ultimate Spider-Man and some of the other incarnations of Spider-Man that have come out through the ages. Now, before we actually cover the issues, let's go over a bit of some of the cast that we're going to meet uh, that aren't being introduced in the issues themselves, like the High Evolutionary, for instance. But let's go with some ones who are already there. First off, we have Thor, God of Thunder, Son of Odin, member of the Avengers, all-round superhero. Jane Foster is currently Thor's girlfriend, hum- uh, who's a human mortal, not an Asgardian. We have Tana Nile, and also the, the alien race that she's a member of, the Regillians. Now, I don't really know everything about them. I really have only seen them a few times, so I kind of just went to Wikipedia for this. But anyway, Tana Nile of the planet Rigel 3 was a leading female member of the colonizers of Rigel. In her attempt to colonize the planet Earth, Tana Nile took a human form as Jane Foster's roommate. Tana took control of Jane Foster's will and then resumed her Rigelian form. Also known as the colonizers of Rigel, the Rigelians are a scientifically and technologically advanced alien race devoted towards amassing an empire via colonization. There's a recorder. The, the Rogelians are skilled in robotics and created a race of robotic life forms called the Recorders. The Recorders are generally used as scouts to explore new territory and report back to the Rogelians. Recorder 211 was assigned to accompany Thor in his mission to Ego the Living Planet, which will be referenced in the very beginning of when we start covering issue 134. And finally, we have Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch. Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch are mutants who are currently members of the Avengers. They were first appeared in the X-Men title as members of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but changed their ways and became superheroes. And that's it. Alright, on to Thor 134. The title of this story is The People Breeders. It had a cover date of November 1966 and went on sale on September 1st, 1966, with a cover price of 12 cents. Writer Stan Lee, penciler Jack Kirby, inker Vince Coletta, Letterers Sam Rosen and Art Simic, and the cover art is credited to Jack Kirby, Vince Coletta, and Stan Goldberg. Thor and the Recorder are flying in space and recapping the events of the last issue. Thor has defeated Ego the Living Planet and has vowed to stay in the Black Galaxy. Since this has somehow saved them, the people of Rigel must now give up their attempt to conquer the Earth. Thor and the Recorder are brought into a Rigelian sentry ship where the Rigelians confirm this. The Virgilians are also tracking what Thor thinks is a quasar, but appears to be smaller and have more energy. Unfortunately, they have to leave and aren't able to get a good look at it. If they had, they would have seen it was Galactus. If only the Thor from last episode would have known this, it would have made the uh, search that Odin was going to send him on for Galactus a lot easier. Back on Earth, the Virgilian Tana Nile is in a New York courtroom and receives word that her colonization of Earth has been cancelled. Thor then shows up with two Regilians and tells Tanda that he does not blame her for just doing what she had been trained to do. He just wants to know where Jane Foster is. Tanda does not know, as she had just sent Jane away in hopes that Thor would waste time looking for her. The other Regilians give Thor a psych search gauge. 
that is attuned to Jane so he can find her and then take Tananile away. While Thor does not know where Jane is, we are shown. She is in a small European country in the company of Count Tegar. While in his car, she hears a Count being warned that there are armed bandits waiting for him so they can take the wealth of Wundegore. However, the Count is not worried as the Knights of Wundegore will protect him. Jane is confused by all of this and wonders what she was in for and why she took the job with him. The car is, of course, attacked by bandits, and at first they just face the Count, who moves through them, as they say, like a wild beast. Before they can get the upper hand, they are attacked by the unseen Knights of Wundegore. Shortly afterwards, Thor is flying towards the same area tracking Jane. He stops when he sees a group of beaten bandits. The bandits were shaken by the side of the knights, and that is enough for Thor to forget his mission to find Jane and find out what these men saw. As he flies up the mountain, a steel lasso ensnares him. The lasso is wielded by the Knights of Wundegore. We see four of them at first wearing Kirby-style, medieval-esque armor and riding flying metal steeds. They take Thor to their base inside the mountain. Thor does not resist because he feels this is where Jane is. Not sure why, doesn't give a reason, but he does. Once inside, Thor requests his bonds be removed, as he had come with the knights willingly. Since they do not comply with this request, he asks more strenuously. And by strenuously, I mean he kicks the crap out of them. At this point, we learn the names of several of the knights. Sir Leopard, Sir Ocelot, and Sir Lion. After seeing Thor's display of strength, one of the knights, not sure which one, but it's not one of the names we saw already, decides to remove his bonds, as he is worthy of a more dignified entry into Wendigore. Thor wishes to finally see the faces of his enemy, and the knight removes his helmet, saying that they are not human, they are new men. We don't see what the face looks like yet, but Thor looks shocked. At this point, we have an almost one-page interlude of Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch from the Avengers. They had come back to Europe to renew their waning mutant powers. They stop below Windegor and see the lights above, possibly from Thor's meeting with the knights, or maybe just from the High Evolutionary's experiments. They recall stories of similar lights seen in the mountains the day they were born. Finally, we get our first glimpse of the High Evolutionary. He is in his lab creating another new man from a wolf. So far, we can guess that they are part animal then. In fact, in the next few panels, we can see the outline of the wolf becoming more human-like. From what we can see of the High Evolutionary, he appears to be a man in purple and white armor, with a handle on top of his head. Not sure what the handle's for, though. We now get to see what everyone looks like in a good three-quarter page panel of Thor being restrained by a few unhelmeted new men as he meets the High Evolutionary. The new men are human-animal hybrids. Thor demands to see Jane, and since it's interrupting his experiment, the High Evolutionary just points Thor to where Jane is. What would he have done if the High Evolutionary of a clue Jane was? Uh, don't know. Anyway, Thor finds Jane in a classroom teaching new men. She's teaching them about the outside world. Thor wants to take her away, as he feels as an aura of growing evil. She does not think there is any evil, but Thor says there is more to the place than she suspects. At that moment, there is an explosion in the lab as the High Evolutionary left the wolf cooking for too long. Inside the lab, the wolf hybrid lives and hates. And we know this because those are his first words, and how the, the issue ends. I live, I feel, and more, I hate. Let's cover the notes on issue 134 before we start covering issue 135. Right, start the cover, of course. And this is a really iconic-looking cover. It's Thor bursting into the room that the High Evolutionary is working in. Thor is covered in knights trying to stop him, 
and in the background we can see what we'll learn in the issue is the man-beast being created. Thor is in full color, but pretty much everyone else is in dark colors, like they're in shadow. We start the issue with a full-page splash of Thor and the Recorder. It's a nice splash, but it's a bit of a letdown after the awesome cover. I really wish Kirby had been doing his collages by now, because that would have been a lot better. In page 2, how does Thor know what a Quasar is? I'm accepting that Kirby's Asgard is similar to, similar to the movie Asgard. It's actually an alien civilization. But Thor still wasn't a scientist. He's a warrior. I'm not even sure if you can say this is info bleeding over from Don Blake. Besides the fact that I'm not sure where we are with the Don Blake identity right now, Don was a medical doctor, not an astrophysicist. Page 3, we have Galactus. And not only do we have Galactus, but he has changed to a purple and orange outfit. And he has short sleeves, but no shorts this time. So maybe this is his spring outfit, and then the one we'll see on the cover for 168 is his summer outfit? Alright, page 5, uh, the cops are talking about Tana and the Regillians like they're crazy for talking about going into space. Let's just forget for now how many alien attacks are shown to be in major metropolitan areas in the Marvel Universe in the late 50s and early 60s. Just look at them. They're short and yellow with really large heads. Where else did they come from? France? On page 6, we get to see a good shot of the uh, armed bandits, and those are some really weird outfits for armed bandits. Green jumpsuits with brown boots and belts and old-fashioned red football helmets. These are like the really old-fashioned football helmets, like they used in the 20s and 30s, so there's really nothing covering the face. It just looks like some kind of cloth covering their head, really. And some of the helmets have eyepieces connected to them, and some don't, with the bandit then just wearing a domino mask like Robin. So I'm wondering if like, they just didn't have enough money to get good helmets for everyone, and some of the newer guys just had to use stuff stolen from the local high schools? On page 7, we have Count Tegar ripping into the group of bandits. And for what we're going to learn about him in the next issue, I like him a lot. He's a cool guy. He's a badass. I'm also liking on this page how they show the initial attack by the knights on the bandits. We don't even see them until the last panel, and then it's just partially. All we see in the battle is the effects of their weapons, and I think this is done to good effect. Page 8 is Thor investigating the bandits and who beat them up, and it must be somewhere between this issue and the one we covered in episode 3, which is issue 163, that Thor starts taking something for his ADD. Because here he jumps right into the mystery of who beat up this group of men. At no point does he think of Jane at all. And the next page, 9, we finally get to see the knights. Alright, they're completely covered up in armor, but at least we now somewhat have an idea what they look like. And I like Kirby's design of the knights and their flying steeds. It's a pretty cool looking scientific take on the medieval design. But damn, those colors are horrible. Bright reds and greens and orange just makes the makes them look goofy then. It really takes away from Kirby's design. Page 11, after Thor has kicked the crap out of the knights that captured him, one of them finally removes his helmet, but it's on the last panel of the page, and Thor can see what it looks like underneath, but we can't. And I'm really enjoying the pacing that Kirby's been using in this issue. He's trying to build up some suspense of what the knights really look like, because the first time they show up, we have just saw their weapons, and only get a glimpse of part of them, and the next time we saw them, we saw them in full, but only in full armor, so we didn't get to see what they look like underneath. And they're actually even giving real clues with the names. Sir Ocelot, Sir Leopard, 
So it's actually not just Kirby doing this, but Stan as well. Page 12 is the page of Quicksil and the Scarlet Witch, and it's kind of a pointless page. It really does nothing for the story, doesn't advance any plot. Uh, the only thing that makes it less useless is the fact that there's a more useless page in issue 135. I don't know why they included this. Um, is there a story involving them in like issue 136, or did they decide they just wanted to seed the fact that they have come from Wundagore or in that area? I don't know. Page 13, we finally got a look at the High Evolutionary. And I know I said this in synopsis, but I always think it anyway, every time I see him. Why is there a handle on the top of his helmet? What purpose is it? What was the design reason for putting a handle up there? I just Kirby, what were you thinking? <laughs> Page 14 is where we get the reveal of the new men, finally. And I still think the armor looks goofy, but I like how they themselves look. And we also finally get Thor remembering why he's even in Europe. Jane Foster. And where he's demanding them, they showed him Jane. I'm not sure why he's demanding. I mean, yeah, he had the psych whatever probe thing the Regillians gave him, and that's how he tracked it to Europe. But once he saw the bandits that were beaten up by the new men, he stopped paying attention to that. It was more following his curiosity. So I don't know. Either maybe between the panels he had a chance to look at the device and it showed that Jane was there. Or probably after the last couple of years, he's just gotten used to all the crazy coincidences in Silver Age Marvel Comics and just assumed, well, if I'm here, she has to be here. I mean, either way, he was right, but don't know how he came to that conclusion. Page 15 is a page where Thor bursts into Jane Foster's classroom where she's teaching the new men. And we got a lot of new men in that page, and the designs, again, are really cool looking. Uh, my favorite bit, though, actually, in this page is the two new men in the back who are gossiping about who this blonde guy is and why he's bursting into their class and yelling and screaming. It's just a nice little touch, I thought. It makes them seem a little bit more, like, real. And finally, we've gotten to our last page, page 16, and we see the Man-Beast. Now, Man-Beast, he's supposed to be an evolved wolf, right? Because that's what the High Evolutionary left cooking in his machine when he got distracted by Thor. So, why does he look more like Man-Bat from Batman, just without the wings? I mean, the nose looks a little baddish, and the those ears, I mean, I know wolf wolf ears are supposed to be, but they really look like big bat ears. I mean, as much as I've liked a lot of Kirby's designs in this issue, I really am not thrilled with this one, I think, the most. Mmm, great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Hmm? Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. Oh, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. Well, these two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Well, let me tell you, Chris. You can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. HPPodcraft.com Now we come to the second issue we're going to be covering this episode. Thor 135, The Maddening Menace of the Super Beast. 
had a cover date of December 1966 and went on sale on October 4th, 1966 with a cover price of 12 cents. Writer Stan Lee, penciler Jack Kirby, inker Vince Coletta, letterers Sam Rosen and Art Simic, cover art credited to Jack Kirby, Vince Coletta, and Stan Goldberg. The story starts with the man-beast moving through a wall and coming out where Thor and Jane Foster are. He attacks Thor, telling him that he, quote, possesses the brain of man as it will be a million years hence, plus the powers of Wolf as he will be a million years hence. He attacks Thor using pressure points, deadly karate, and a science that won't be discovered for 50,000 more years, which destroys Thor's time sense, leaving him unable to move. However, Thor is no mortal, but a god, and fights back. While Thor and the Man-Beast fight, the High Evolutionary and his knights show up to finish off the beast. The High Evolutionary uses what is basically a super-powered dog whistle, which should kill the beast, but as powerful as he is, it just hurts him. The Man-Beast runs and is able to get out of range of the whistle and put up a mental force field before Thor's hammer can hit him. The Man-Beast is able to get to an open door and closes it behind him. Thor attempts to give chase, but is stopped by the High Evolutionary, who demonstrates that the Man-Beast had put up an anti-matter barrier in front of the wall. And yes, this demonstration does involve just blowing stuff up. The worst part is that behind the wall is the High Evolutionary's genetic lab, and he's worried about what the Man-Beast could be up to in there. He then takes a moment to pose and give a brief soliloquy about why he created the Newman. We then go to Asgard for Page of Odin, very distractedly watching a sporting joust between Baldur and an unnamed opponent. Odin is distracted because he feels some danger faces Thor. Basically, it has nothing to do with the story. So we're moving on, and we now have a full-page splash by Kirby of the outside of Windigore, showing what the High Evolutionary's base looks like from the outside. The base looks like it was built all around and also inside the mountain. Personally, I think it looks a lot better than his design for the Beehive that we covered in Episodes 1 and 2, or Fantastic Four 66 and 67. Back inside, Thor and the High Evolutionary have set a trap for the Man-Beast. The High Evolutionary has set up a vibrobeam, powerful enough to cause the Man-Beast to come out from behind his antimatter barrier to destroy it. Thor's part is to beat the Man-Beast to a pulp when he comes about. Faster than they expected, the Man-Beast shows up with his own army of evil new men and attacks. In another part of the castle, Porga and Tagar watch the battle on a monitor, and Tagar orders any remaining knights to the battle. He then hands off to the battle himself, despite having no training since he was mostly acting as a High Evolutionary's ambassador. Thor and the Man-Beast fight, and Thor is victorious this time. Having won the battle, the High Evolutionary and his knights quickly put Man-Beast and his army into the Star Chamber, which then shoots off into space to an uninhabited world for them to start over. The High Evolutionary then removes his helmet to reveal he is a normal human underneath. He then recaps his origin for Thor and Jane, even though no one asked. He was a genetic scientist, but his theories and work were laughed at. He evolved his pet Dalmatian into the first new man, but it was accidentally shot by a hunter. Aww, poor puppy. Becoming suddenly rich by finding a load of uranium, he created Wundagore and started creating more new men, teaching them a code of honor and chivalry based on the knights of old. Porka and Tagar were two of his earliest creations, and they acted as his agents in the outside world, bringing supplies and information. Now, after the battle of the evil Newmen, he feels there's only one way to keep mankind safe. He allows Thor and Jane to depart, 
and the outer rocky shell of the mountain falls off to reveal all metal underneath. The whole base is a giant space arc, and it takes off for the stars. Well, let's get to the notes on Thor 135. We'll start off with the cover. The cover is uh, by Kirby, like we said. It's Thor fighting the man-beast, or, well, man-bat, because that's what he looks like. He also only has three toes, the man-beast. Do wolves only have three toes? I thought they would have five, like most dogs. But maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, uh, it's a nice cover. A uh, little, little sparse because it's only the two of them. It's a plain whitish background, so there's nothing in the back there. And also, it's a little awkward looking because Thor is both facing us and the man-beast. And the man-beast is facing us, so Thor is kind of crouched in front of him and bent around, so he's facing two of us. So, it's a little awkward there, because I don't know if you could actually really be in that position. On page one is the opening splash page, and it's kind of interesting the way Kirby does this page, in the fact that it looks like two panels, but it's really only one. Because this is the page from the synopsis where the man-beast is coming through the wall, if you remember, and Thor and Jane are there, and that's where he pops out. And so the right hand of the page is Thor and Jane, and the left hand of the page is just the man-beast coming through the wall, and with the energy and everything drawn around him of the way he's coming through the wall, it looks like they're two separate panels, but there really is no panel border. So that's a cool way to do it. I like that. Makes it a little different. Breaks up the page a little bit, and still it's a nice still a splash page, but... Something new, at least I haven't seen him do that too much. I don't know, maybe he just did that for a little while, or maybe I just missed all the issues that he's done it in, but I thought it was a cool way to start it off. On page two now, and the man-beast is explaining, while fighting of course, that he is the mind a human will have in a that million years. And I'm not really sure what that's supposed to mean based on his actions shown. I mean, my assumption would be that it's the way a brain would operate in a million years. So, you know, perhaps able to retain more knowledge or work faster or sharper or even psionic type abilities. And to be fair, he does have psionic abilities. I kind of glossed over that in the, in the synopsis a bit, but he does have some psionic abilities. They become more of a factor later on in his career. This issue, we blast Thor from a little bit during the fight and it doesn't really work. And then Thor beats him down. So, whatever. But besides those, he has knowledge of advanced martial arts and future science. Not even ability to understand science. He knows science that hasn't been discovered. So it's not so much like he is the brain a person will develop in a million years. It's like he took somebody's brain from a million years from now and said, Oh, you know all this science. Great, let me take this. So since time travel wasn't involved, and this is just evolution, I don't doesn't really work you know i mean maybe he has advanced reflexes that can go with it so instead of being advanced karate as he said it's better reflexes but i'm still can't explain away the uh future science that he uses to lock thor's time sense i'm not even sure what time sense really is i don't think that's real science don't quote me on that, but I think that's I think Stan might have made that part up. Page three, the High Evolutionary is using the subsonic discordion, which is basically just a superpowered dog whistle, to attack the man beast. And well, a the panel of him using that thing is pretty funny and a bit dirty looking, but my question is now, he's 
wearing armor, how can you blow while wearing a metal mask? I mean, is that really possible? Just... Yeah, that's one on Kirby now. So, at least it's fair. One on Stan just now with the uh, Super Science and Vince Karate, and now this one's on Kirby, I think. How do you blow while you're wearing a metal, full metal mask that obviously is shown to cover your lips and everything? So on page 4 and 5, I love how the High Evolutionary pulls up the knowledge of what the Man-Beast is going to do out of his ass. Okay, the Man-Beast has run away from the subsonic Discordian and goes locks the door behind him. And Thor, you know, goes to go after him and the High Evolutionary stops him because that's where the Man-Beast has put up an antimatter barrier that we don't see. And we don't see him do anything. So he must have done on the other side of the wall. And Ivolution just knows that he's done that. How? Well, 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 okay, I guess let me think about... He said that it's his lab back there, so he has to assume he's doing something with his lab, because that's probably what he would do. Alright, I guess I gotta retract my statement. I mean, I have to go back and look at the actual dialogue again and say if he knew exactly what kind of barrier he's gonna put up, or just that... Maybe he just knew it would be some type of barrier and didn't know it would be the antimatter one until he chucked stuff at it and it blew up and he went, oh, antimatter. All right, never mind. Forget that. I'm, I'm a moron. High Evolutionary was right. Damn you, Stan. All of a sudden you're bringing logic? How could you do this to me? That's just not fair. Page six, we have the completely useless page. Unlike... 134, we had a mostly useless page, the one about Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. A, the last panel actually first shows the evolutionary, so it's not completely useless. And also, if, you know, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch are going to be in the next issue or two of Thor, I didn't see them on the covers when I looked at the covers, but it's possible. Or, at the very least, it does see the fact that that's where they were born, as in Windigore, or at the base of Mount Windigore, so... You know, it's not completely useless, although it is kind of useless to the story. But this page in Asgard is completely useless. It's just about Odin having a sense of forbidding of something about to attack Thor, or some danger about to befall Thor. Man-Beast is already attacked. He's already befallen the danger. This this is the part of the pacing. I've liked a lot, I liked a lot of the pacing that's been done, especially the last issue. This one is not so good. This would have made more sense... Maybe the last page of last issue, or the first page of this one, to, you know, end that or even start it off, and then we go into the actual danger Thor's in. But when he's already in the danger, it just doesn't do anything for the story. In contrast, page 7 is a much better page. It's the full-page splash of the outside of the Evolutionary's base at Wundagore, and it shows the entire mountain it's in, and all the stuff he has built around it. You have all these kind of... Uh, these buildings around outside and these pipes and uh, tunnels that seem to go into it. So by looking at that, you can assume it's not just built around the mountain, but he's hollowed out at least part of the mountain and has the base inside as well. And actually, by the end of the issue, we learn how correct assumption that is, that it is actually the entire mountain has been either hollowed out or the, he built a base and then put rock around it. Most likely, it's the entire mountain's been hollowed out that just make more sense, I think, than trying to put rock on that side of metal. Page 9, the man-beast and his new army attacks. And besides the fact that a lot of these creatures are pretty cool looking as well, nice designs by Kirby, 
the look on the right hand part of the panel. It's the Red Hulk. It looks just like Red Hulk. Oh, well, maybe a little chunkier. But it's the Red Hulk. So Kirby created the Red Hulk. Who knew? Page 10, all I have to say is Count Tegar is a damn badass. I love this guy. I mean, now, I know he doesn't really become much of a major character, which is a shame, but I do want to see where he pops up next and what he does. You know, even he's like a Silver Age Wolverine. I mean, hell, he's even fighting a white tank top, which Wolverine is one of the few guys I can think of who fights a lot in some kind of white tank top. But I love that. He's not trained for combat, really. He was meant to be an ambassador, but he doesn't care. He's off to fight. He's loyal, and he's off to fight. And that's pretty awesome. And uh, I forget the name of the big metal gloves he puts on, but they do look like the Satan's Claw from uh, the Stranko era shield. And going with that fight, page 11 is an awesome it's a splash page of the fight between Thor and the High Evolutionary and his new men against the Man-Beast and his evil new men. And it's really cool looking. It's worth finding. I hope you guys are able to see it, either whether you're able to find it yourself somewhere, or at least I hope in my search for scans of pages, I'm able to find that one to put on the Tumblr page, because that's a really awesome fight page. I said it before in the last few episodes, and I'll say it again, this Thor run actually is Lee and Kirby at the height. This is better, I think, than their Fantastic Four run, although the Fantastic Four run might be more memorable because it introduces more main Marvel concepts. This run seems to be a lot better. It's a lot more better plotted. There's The Kirby art is better. He seems to be more doing more things of it. Stan seems to be a lot tighter with his scripting and, for the most part, paying more attention to things. So I'm definitely going to have to continue reading this Thor run, even though I'm not covering it for the uh, show anymore. I'm definitely going to continue reading it. What about you guys? Let me know if you're still interested in reading this Thor run after these. Or if you've read it and whether I'm right or wrong, in your opinion. Let me know. On page 13, not only do we get to see Thor deliver one hell of a beatdown to the man-beast, but this is the page where the High Evolutionary and his army of Newmen push the uh, evil Newmen and the man-beast into the star chamber to send them off into space. And if you're looking on that panel, if you look on the Blues on the lower right-hand side, we have the Beast from the X-Men. The furry version of the Beast, obviously. Now, granted, this one is gray, not blue, but the Beast was gray when he first became furry back in Amazing Adventures and then eventually became blue. And also the Dark Beast from Age of Apocalypse was gray. I'm not really sure how long he stayed gray, but I know he was gray for a while, at least. So it's kind of funny that we have two different characters in this issue who look like future versions of Marvel characters. The Beast and the Furry Beast and the Red Hulk. And it reminds me, because you sometimes forget, that Kirby was like, you know, someone like Morrison now or Alan Moore, where they throw more concepts and characters in an issue than a lot of people do in a whole run. It's even more amazing because Kirby wrote and drew a lot of his own stuff. So, you know, because Morrison and Moore usually just write their stuff. Kirby just does the whole thing on his own. So it makes the guy even more impressive, I think. I was going to have a note on page 16 about wondering whether the mountain was covered after being when it was first a spaceship, or was it a mountain howled out to make room for a base? But I really went over that earlier. I am thinking about the fact that it's called Wundagore, and it takes off, but we know Wundagore, Mount Wundagore, still makes appearances at Marvel. I'm just assuming maybe it's a wind, called the Wundagore Mountain Range, so there's several mountains there, and this one just was one that he used up, but it's not the actual Mount Wundagore. I mean, either that or... He eventually comes back to Earth, brings a spaceship, and covers up rock again. And, well, a possible thing they would have done in the Silver Age, I 
still don't think they would have done it. At least I hope not. Alright, so in conclusion, that was the beginning of the High Evolution and the Man Beast. I know it wasn't actually an Adam Warlock issue, even less so than some of the other ones we've done. But I figured we should cover their first appearances because both of them will be very important to Adam in the next chapter of his life. I'd say I like the High Evolutionary here, kind of. I mean, I haven't read everything with him, I've read a few things here and there. But you can see how this guy would end up becoming the uh, kind of genocidal guy they're showing in the current New Warrior series, where he's trying to get rid of every offshoot of humanity, Atlanteans, mutants, etc. Because he is a bit obsessive over this whole genetic thing. I mean, come on, anyone's going to take their beloved pet and go, hey, I'm going to evolve you and experiment on you. Kind of a dick. And at least the man piece, I will say, he does get better appearance-wise, at least. I can't, again, he's not the one I read a lot of. So this next chapter in Adam's life is going to be interesting for me because I haven't read a lot of that either. So I don't really know about, much about Adam there. But I will say, from pictures I've seen the Man-Beast, he actually does look more like a wolf hybrid as opposed to the bat hybrid he looks like here. Before we close out these two issues, I'm just going to go over real quick what the backup stories were. They have even less to do with Adam, but they were there, so what the hell. It's only going to take about a minute or two anyway because they're only five pages each. And they're not even full stories. It looks like it's part one and two of an ongoing several-part story. So we're not going to get through the end of it. But anyway, Thor and the Warriors 3, Vandral the Dashing, Hogan the Grimm, and Volstag are sent by Odin to inspect the land of Nastrond. Years ago, it was filled with such evil beings that Odin raised the entire place and nothing survived. So they make camp at night and Volstag stands guard. After falling asleep... He is lured away by an old man who promises to lead him to the Cave of the Ancients, where he will receive great knowledge. Too late, Volstagg realizes it's a trap, and the old man is actually the ancient king of the land, Farnir. Through some magic pool he found, he was able to survive and change his shape, in turning into a green, goofy-looking dragon. And it is very goofy-looking. Uh, the next morning, Thor, Hogan, and Fandral go looking for Volstagg and are attacked by Fafnir. They fight back, and we also see that Odin was watching on his universal, mir universal mirror. He knew Farnir was still alive, and had sent Thor and the others to take care of him. They're only five pages, but they're kind of fun. Uh, it gives me another reason to want to keep rereading this run of Thor, because I want to read all these other tales of Asgard. Like I said, Farnir is pretty goofy looking, so I'm assuming maybe Kirby used up all his good ideas on the main stories. And Odin's really a jerk. I mean, he could have at least warned them he thought somebody was alive there, but he just goes, eh, no, go inspect the place, it's empty. Just check it out. Let me know what it looks like. Doesn't even warn them. Yeah, this really powerful guy is probably still alive. You're going to have to kill him, so he's going to attack you. So, watch out. He's a jerk. And, yeah, okay, that's it for Thor 134-135. We're now going to get back to the rest of this podcast. If you're interested in reading these issues yourselves and you don't already have it, there are a few ways of getting it besides buying the originals, of course. There are a couple reprints. Both of them were reprinted in the Thor reprint series, Marvel Spectacular, which started in 1973. Issue 134 is reprinted number 5, and issue 135 is reprinted number 6. They are both also reprinted in the Central Thor, Volume 2, Marvel Masterworks, The Mighty Thor, Hardcover, Volume 5, Marvel Visionaries, Jack Kirby, Hardcover, Volume 1, and the Thor Omnibus, Hardcover, Volume 2. Digitally, the only place I can find them 
was on the Marvel Digital Comics Unlimited website. As far as I could tell, you cannot buy them through Comicology or anything else like that. Now, of course, I'm only talking legal ways. If you have other nefarious ways of getting comics digitally, I am not saying this is not out there. I am sure it is. It's now time to check in with Adam's friends and see where they are these months. And Adam really doesn't have any friends because A, you know, the title has appeared in his Fantastic Four and he never met any of them in it. <laughs> but also because this is all before he even was first appeared. But anyway, the Fantastic Four on these two months that the Thor 134 and 135 were released were on issue 56 and 57 of their own title. So they are 10 issues away from Adam's first appearance. Issue 56 is Claw, the murderous master of sound. On a verge of a breakthrough while researching subspace, Reed, Sue, and Ben are menaced by the reborn Claw. The master of sound gets more than he bargained for in a battle atop the Baxter building. And Fantastic Four 57 is Enter Doctor Doom. When the wizard and the Sandman attempt an escape from state prison, the Fantastic Four must heed the call. Meanwhile, Dr. Doom hatches a scheme to relieve the Silver Surfer of his most prized possession. Reed and the team will need to be on their game to tackle this crime wave. Ah, oh, is that the issue where Dr. Doom steals the Surfer's powers and is riding a surfboard? I love that image. It's just crazy. <laughs> oh, I gotta look for that one now. I think I gotta read that. Oops, okay, sorry. Um, I'll stop reading. I probably should finish this show first. Where was I? Oh, yes, okay. Adam's powers. So, in Adam's powers, we've been going over powers Adam's been ex exhibiting since if you read enough Adam Warlock, you see his powers keep fluctuating. They change a lot, especially depending on which life he's on. So, so far, we've covered, in the last few episodes, we've covered the powers he's shown before he went to his first cocoon, while in his first cocoon, and then his first life, which we saw in Fantastic Four 67 and Thor 165. Adam's second life, which is Thor 165 and 166. First off, we see he has some kind of telekinetic ability, as he uses that to throw Thor and Balder down the hall without touching them, which was on 165, page 13. And he also uses that to cause the roots to come out of the ground and grab Balder in issue 166, page 7. He has teleportation, because that's what he uses to take himself and sif away. Uh, issue 165, page 14. Energy blasts, at least and strong enough to stun Thor, so they're pretty strong. Uh, issue 165, page 16. He's pretty invulnerable, because he's able to stand uh, Molnir being thrown at him. That's issue 166, page 8. He can create force fields, like he uses to trap Sif in. Uh, issue 166, page 8 again. And obviously has super strength because he's able to use that to fight Thor. Issue 166, page 9. I think next episode I'm going to make a list of all the ones he's exhibited so far in this first chapter of his life. In the him chapter, let's call it. And we'll see if there's anything that's uh, constant. Anything he has a lot of. Or do they completely change each time? Ready to form Voltron! Job for Superman. Power Rangers! Right away, Michael. 
Autobots, transform! By the power of Grayskull! For the honors of Grayskull! Hello. I'm the Doctor. Charlie's GeekCast, coming January 1st, 2013, to www.charliesgeekcast.com. This would be the part of the show where I would read your emails, but again, we have no emails. So, someone send me an email, please. Actually, if you want to wait, because, like I said the other time, Keith Mason sent his email on March 13th, and W. Blaine Dowler sent his on April 13th. I was hoping to maybe get one on May 13th, but come on, someone sent me one on June 13th. If I only get one email a month and it's always on the same day, I'll be quite amused, actually, and happy with that. And then you get your name said in multiple episodes, like Keith Mason and W. Blaine Blaine Dowler. So, how can you turn that down? But, anyway, besides the email, you can also go to my Tumblr site, resurrectionsadamwarlock.tumblr.com Not only is the show posted on there if you want to download it directly, but I also do put up scans of pages from the episode and uh, pictures of characters from it and other little notes and antidotes and uh, links to things I think are interesting or relative to the show that happen in between recordings. If you want, you can also I go to Podbean, uh, acedano.podbean.com which is what I use to put the episodes up on iTunes and you can get the RSS feed directly there if you want to instead of using iTunes use the podcatcher of your choice and if you just miss me and you hate the fact that you only hear from me twice a month you can also go to fourcolor.podwits.com for my other show Four Color Fanboys that I do with Brian Zeno from the Podwits podcast that brings us to the end of another episode of Resurrections and Adam Warlock podcast I hope you enjoyed this look at two issues in one episode and I'd like to give thanks to a couple of uh, websites that helped me out in my research there is comicbookdb which can be found at comicbookdb.com the complete Marvel reading order which can be found at cmro.travis-starns.com Mike's Amazing World of Comics at dcindexes.com and wikipedia at wikipedia.org Links to all these sites, as well as the other sites and podcasts mentioned or promoted in this episode, like Four Color Fanboys, Charlie's Geek Cast, Comic Geek Speak, and the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast, will be found on the show notes on my Tumblr page. I will be back on or about June 1st with Episode 8, where we will start covering the second chapter of Adam's Life with Marvel Premiere Number 1. Hope to see you guys there. Thank you and goodbye. Resurrections and Adam Warlock podcast is a fan-made production, and I make no claims of ownership or copyright over Adam Warlock, the Mighty Thor, Odin, the Revolutionary, the Man Beast, Red Hulk or any other characters that appear or are mentioned in this episode. All these characters are copyrighted and owned by Marvel Comics, which is also owned by Walt Disney Corporation. 
please don't sue me, Disney. The opening music for this podcast is Intro Pompeii by Lino Rise, and the closing music is Dark and Dramatic by DJ Puzzle. Both are licensed by the Creative Commons license. You can find Lino Rise at free-intro-music.com and DJ Puzzle at peacelovedproductions.com. Links to both can be found on the Tumblr page. It was kind of a note. Did I start recording? (laughs) Yes, I did hit record. Oh my god, I need more coffee.